The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box on CNBC Europe, and here are your headlines this hour. The Treasury yield curve slides deeper into inversion as the gap between three-month and ten-year interest rates widens the most since the financial crisis. For many, that's seen as a major warning signal to investors to keep an eye out for a recession. The Dow slides more than 200 points amid rising trade tensions as Beijing warns Washington not to underestimate its ability to strike back. U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton directly accuses Iran of carrying out ship attacks in the UAE as Gulf leaders meet for an emergency summit amid rising tensions in the region. Nissan's CEO gives a lukewarm backing to a merged Renault and Fiat Chrysler as a potential deal raises questions about how the Japanese automaker would fit into a new alliance. Investors now settling in for a long march themselves after China's leader Xi Jinping had been talking about a long journey ahead for the Chinese. The market reality is now starting to shuffle to the fact or shift to the fact that it might be a long haul trade fight for many investors to contend with, not a deal that could be forthcoming anytime soon. And even if there is a resolution that these tech issues that have been percolating around Huawei could actually just crop up in other areas. So the market, you can see, just uh, suffering a little bit of repositioning uh, across the board. The uh, major equity markets actually deep in the red intraday. For instance, at the Dow, at one point around midday, was down 400 plus points, eventually closing at down 221. So uh, pulling back into uh, some of uh, better ranges by the close of the session, minimizing the losses, but still deeply dead right across, uh, deeply in the red right across the board. The um, lowest close for the Dow since February 11 is now what we've got at this level of 25,126. So investors uh, switching focus, again, taking a look at yields and questioning whether we are now facing a recession at some point that U.S. growth will be compromised. The U.S. 10-year note, 2.26% is the level we've seen. So we've much lower. In fact, 2.21, the, the level we got to, which was a fairly significant drop to around a 20-month low. So investors uh, right across the board pushing down yields. It's the three-month and 10-year that many are now closely watching still because of the inversion that's taken place. The 10-year note, uh, the yield on that 2.26% is uh, very close to the 2.35 that you've got on the three-month. So the three-month are yielding much higher levels despite the fact that there should be some duration risk in the price. Is this signaling something? That's a big question that investors have to come up with an answer to. Jeff. Karen, it is definitely signalling something, but uh, what it's signalling remains to be seen. Let's get straight to Michael Yoshikami, founder and CEO of Destination Wealth Management. Michael, let me toss the question out to you and abdicate responsibility on this one. What do you think this inversion really means for the timing of recession in the U.S.? Uh, I think it means recession is a real possibility. Uh, you know, certainly with what's happening with China right now, uh, in terms of uh, the uh, uh, trade issues not being resolved quickly, and 
just a general slowdown in the United States. If you look at GDP growth and the expectations for growth, uh, I think the bond market is getting it right. Uh, the market, uh, the economy is certainly slowing down. I think recession is, in fact, uh, a real possibility. Trouble is, we saw that sell-off happen in the fourth quarter of last year. People decided that was it. That was the real indication that we were actually uh, headed into recession and it was time to go um, secure with your investments, i.e. move to the sides, buy some bonds, uh, basically take a long holiday. And then we got a rebound into the first quarter of the year. A lot of investors will be nervous that if they move to the sidelines here, they may miss any rebound if this just turns out to be a mid-cycle pause. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, I think that's a great point. And I, I think that uh, it's important that investors do not overreact. Even though recession uh, odds are increasing, uh, I do think the economy is still okay relative to the rest of the world. And I think investors in a lot of ways are overreacting to what's happening in China. I'm a believer there's going to be a deal. There's obviously lots of rhetoric happening right now. Um, the the uh, uh, rare earth mineral comments made today certainly do suggest the Chinese are going to play somewhat hardball. Uh, but I think investors have to be careful. Uh, I think it certainly would make sense to take profit in some of your rallied names uh, in portfolios. But I think it's really a mistake to really overreact on this because, as you said, what happened in the fourth quarter last year could easily happen this, uh, in this, uh, this cycle we're seeing right now. Michael, I want to question though, the repositioning that investors have taken on board with the portfolio. And Ray Dalio was uh, very vocal about some of the tensions now with China, that this could be a, a much longer fight. And he was pointing out the very different approaches, China challenging the United States, top-down versus bottom-up approaches. And what do you think this means, even if we get a deal? Can investors park aside some of those risks around a U.S.-China relationship, or do they actually need to think long-term about their portfolios and the risk of further conflicts between two nations? Well, I, I'm a believer, Karen, that um, those who are, are, are rosy and optimistic in their perspective uh, about China and China's markets uh, and emerging markets, I think, may be uh, a bit more positive than they should be. We're not a believer in really taking risk in EM in any significant way right now, because I do think there is going to be uh, a long slog forward in terms of China-U.S. trade relations, as well as just an overall slowdown in emerging markets. So I don't think you can ignore from a long-term positioning standpoint how your portfolio is structured at this point. Uh, and I think it really would make for uh, it would be a wise decision to really reconsider how much money you have, how much funds you have invested in EM. Michael, what are the opportunities you see out there in terms of approaching the market at this point uh, as we grind lower across on stock markets and have some very deep red ink that's posted intraday at, at different points uh, in the session? What's the strategy? Is there an opportunity to buy anything at this point? Uh, probably not yet, uh, but it's getting there. I mean, we're down six, seven percent on the S and P at this point. Um, I imagine tomorrow will be another tough day, given what's happened on a global basis. Um, but I think we're getting to a point when you start to see markets dropping uh, eight, nine percent. Then I think you start to see opportunities. You start to see some of the tech names that have been sold um, significantly so on fears of what's happening with uh, with China. So. I don't think it's time to get too excited right now about what the opportunities are, but I think if you give it another two, three, four percent, certainly in the United States, I think there does get to be opportunity to invest in risk assets. 
Michael, the, um, the corporates have been major buyers of their own stock, as we know. Uh, Ned Davis had an interesting piece out overnight suggesting we may have gone peak corporate purchasing of equity. Uh, do you think that's the case at this point, or do you think there's dry powder left for companies to continue to flatter their EPS with stock purchases? Yeah, I, I saw Ned's report, uh, and I, I do think that uh, new announcements in terms of corporate purchases are probably not in the cards. Now, remember, a lot of these um, uh, statements made about corporate purchases are that they project that they're going to purchase back their stock six months, 12 months, whatever the period of time is in the future. So you're still going to see uh, purchases of stocks over the next six or 12 months. And frankly, with the market downturn, you'll see it accelerate. As for new buybacks uh, or new announced buybacks, I think it's absolutely correct that there's just a limit to how much companies can really buy back their own stock, particularly if we're moving into a slower economic cycle. Uh, cash is not the worst thing in the world to have on hand. Uh, and so I think that certainly might make uh, CFOs in corporate America hesitant to really announce new projected buyback plans. Uh, just before we uh, we wrap up with you, Michael, um, how much attention are you paying to the technical patterns? I know the bulletin boards are getting excited about a triple top on the S&P at this point, and they see this as part of a long-term topping formation. Do you put much weight on those kind of figures? Uh, you know, I, I really don't at this point. Um, you know, technical is, is certainly not my expertise. I'm, I'm more of a fundamental uh, investor, but I, I don't think um, technical is wrong in suggesting that there's risk uh, that certainly is embedded in this market at this point. And I don't think one needs to, in my view, um, trade based on technicals, but I don't think you can ignore the warning signs as well. Michael, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Michael Yoshikami, founder and CEO of Destination Wealth Management. I want to take you to the trading pattern across the Asian markets today, mostly in the red for the core markets. Uh, Patrick Green across uh, some of the Southeast Asian countries and India, but the rest of these markets are back into the red. Curiously, if you take a pattern of how the Shanghai Composite has traded this year, the last month or so, despite more uncertainty again around trade, the Shanghai market has been somewhat steady, staying in a range. So we've drifted south today, not eight tenths of a percent lower, but very much in a trading range at this level of 2890. The market's still looking for these signals. And we just had a conversation with Michael there talking from the US side about how to approach markets. But a fair level of caution has come right back into these markets early on this year. And now perhaps we're settling down, at least when it comes to the China market until this fresh news flow. When it comes to Japan, uh, this market has been hit a little bit more by some of those international trade winds with the Japanese yen picking up just a little bit of activity on that safe haven bid. Again, we've seen the market challenged by that purchasing of the Japanese yen, 100 points to the downside, almost half of a percent south. So across the board, we're in lockstep uh, trading in negative territory on the core markets. Karen, thank you. Let's um, focus then on uh, where we are on this trade story. I think we're all due an update, aren't we? The official newspaper of China's Communist Party, the People's Daily, has delivered its strongest warning yet that Beijing could restrict exports of rare earth minerals to the US. In an editorial titled, United States Don't Underestimate China's Ability to Strike Back, they always have a 
really snappy, short title, don't they? The paper urged Washington not to dismiss Beijing's ability to protect its interests. Meanwhile, a senior Chinese diplomat described provoking trade disputes as, quote, naked econo economic terrorism. Speaking in Beijing, China's deputy foreign minister, Zhang Hanhui, said China opposes sanctions and protectionism. And, and that was just one of the other issues, really, I think that we brought up with Michael that just rattled the cage yesterday. I mean, it was fascinating watching the price action on the tape. And you could just see as maybe some of the retail punters started to nibble a bit on the lower prices and that buy on the dips mentality came in. Then we got somebody else start talking about the trade war and then we got another leg down. So far, it's just been Trump shooting from the hip and the Chinese have been uh, very quiet, almost the grown up in the room trying to reach the deal. But to me, it feels like there's been a subtle tone shift in the past week or so where you've got the Chinese now saying, well, we can threaten too. And here's some very strong comments from our leaders about how we feel about the situation. So I wonder whether it's more noise uh, trying to approach Trump like he's been approaching China to even the playing field and extract an outcome because the way China's played has not led to a resolution so far, perhaps it's a change of strategy. Uh, let's get out to Eunice in Beijing on this. Uh, Eunice, we don't have a scheduled meeting, as I understand it, between Trump and Xi now until way into the back end of June here. Are we going to have to put up with this for the next four or five weeks? It's, I think so. I mean, it looks as though uh, both sides are really cranking up the rhetoric. And especially, um, you guys just went through some of the comments that came out today. Uh, the vice foreign minister um, was speaking to journalists in Beijing. And he not only, uh, he described President Trump's approach as big sticks. So he said big sticks of tariffs, uh, big sticks of sanctions. And this is not an approach that the Chinese like. And he also, as, as you guys were just talking about, uh, said that this uh, is tantamount to to economic, naked economic um, terrorism. He also said that it was economic homicide and economic bullying. So no shortage of the amount of rhetoric that we're seeing out of China. Now, separate to that, uh, what was interesting in uh, the state media is the way that it's presenting the uh, possibility that the Chinese could use uh, rare earths and the influence that Beijing has in it um, to um, act as a countermeasure to in, in the trade war with the United States. Because at first, we had heard a veiled threat from the state economic planner. And this came after President Xi Jinping had visited a rare earth facility last week. And now uh, what's been interesting is that the very authoritative Communist Party People's Daily had um, put out a comment saying, don't say we didn't warn you. And the reason why this is so significant is because the last time that that phrase was used in this a special section, a special column of the People's Daily was in 1962, before the Chinese uh, went to war with India. And then in um, 1978, so right before China had gone to war with Vietnam. So it's seen as a, a quite a serious declaration. Another thing I wanted to bring up that um, is, is starting to gain a little bit of attention today here is the fact that the Chinese government has also an, announced that it's going to have a spot audits on 250 social organizations. Uh, two of them are um, foreign business or organizations, the American Chamber of Commerce, as well as the Australian Chamber of Commerce. And uh, from what I was just told um, um, by uh, somebody uh, who follows this closely, uh, he said that 
it's not unusual to have these checks because the government has instituted this just a couple of years ago. But what has been rising eyebrows is why these two business groups were chosen. So the Americans and the Australians, when both countries are not having the, the best time right now when it comes to their relationship with China. Eunice, terrific. Thank you for putting it into context for us. The U.S. Commerce Department has imposed new anti-dumping duties on Chinese mattresses and beer kegs, saying they were priced below fair value. The U.S. also slapped new tariffs on German and Mexican-made stainless steel beer kegs. I wonder if that means you'll now have to pay a little bit more at the bar for that pint. ECB Vice President Luis de Guindos gives us his take on the impact of global trade tensions. Stand by for that interview. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. Meantime, opening calls in Europe this morning are signalling a positive start to green arrows right across the UK, France, uh, Germany and UK and uh, should say Italian markets this morning. As leaders spar over top jobs at the European Commission, the race is on to name the next European Central Bank president, with Mario Draghi set to finish his term at the end of October. The change comes at a turbulent time for markets, with ECB using its latest financial stability review to warn that challenges for Europe have increased amid downturn risks to the economy. Annette has sat down with ECB Vice President Luis de Guindos and asked him if he thought an escalation in trade tensions should cause further market volatility. As I have said before, you know, if uh, just in case, and uh, I hope that we will be able to avoid it, if just in case that we go to a, a full-blown uh, trade war, uh, for sure that, uh, you know, that could be, you know, extremely detrimental and that, uh, you know, it could, it could affect not only the volatility of markets, it could affect, uh, you know, the real, the real economy quite, uh, quite rapidly, especially because you have to take in, 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 into consideration, you know, the moment of the global economy that, uh, you know, we have, uh, we have now because there is a slowdown and that could be, you know, very additional, very negative uh, news for the world economy. Annette also asked De Guindos how concerned he was about the Italian financial system. Well, I think that, uh, you know, the main problem of Italy is uh, very low growth. They have not been growing uh, uh, over the last, uh, since the beginning of the crisis. They have not recovered the, the, the GDP pre-crisis level. Uh, and it's perhaps, you know, in that respect, uh, you know, it's quite a unique case. No? And simultaneously, you know, this has to do with, uh, you know, the, the, there is another aspect that is the, 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 the high level no? of public debt. The public debt ratio is above 130%, one of the highest in the euro the eurozone i think that these are the two main elements uh, behind uh, you know the poor performance of uh, of italy and i think that uh, you know simultaneously you know italy has some 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 advantages for instance you know it has a current account uh, surplus mm, that uh, indicates that uh, you know they are competitive and simultaneously you know in terms of fiscal consolidation if you look at the, the track record of the of uh, you know the italian budget well, they have been, uh, you know, over the last two decades, uh, almost every year they have got a primary surplus. That is something that is quite, quite, quite unique. So that's the broad picture. Low growth, high public debt, but simultaneously in terms of the private sector, you know, the, the, you know, the, 
the the you know the equilibrium and the balances are much 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 better so here the point is that for sure that uh, you know they will have to continue restructuring the banking industry they have done some concrete movements in in recent years uh, but i think that the, the, the you know the key element for the future of the italian economy is going to be a structural reform is to continue you know uh, putting in place uh, you know the the main elements in order to recover you know decent growth but how likely is that given the political headwinds uh, in the country if you look at what uh, politicians in italy are currently saying and talking about making plans this is completely contrary to structural reforms so do you think italy is actually headed towards a very adverse scenario mm -hmm. i'm not going to elaborate on concrete you know uh, governments no but uh, you know i think that the recipe for italy is quite quite obvious uh, they have to respect, you know, the fiscal rules. And whenever there is an agreement between the Commission and the, the Italian government, you see immediately uh, that, uh, you know, there is a reward in terms of uh, narrowing spreads that uh, are positive for, for, for not only for the budget, but also for uh, the borrowing costs of the private sector in Italy. And on the other side, when uh, you have, uh, you know, uh, a confrontation uh, uh, between the, a government, in this case, the Italian government and the Commission, and uh, the possibility of an infringement uh, procedure, well, uh, immediately, uh, well, uh, spreads widen. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, that's taking into consideration the volume of debt of Italy. And this is something that uh, they should uh, pay a lot of attention to. Uh, Luis de Guindos there talking with uh, Aneta. Um, it's all well and good, it seems to me, to focus on Italy at this point. But there are a few other things that we need to keep an eye on. That German unemployment number we looked mm. at yesterday ticked us back up to 5%. That's the first move up in unemployment we've seen since 2013 for the Eurozone. And the inflation data out of France, again, suggesting that there's a weakening in demand. Uh, we slip back on the CPI print here. So as much as I understand why everybody wants to look at Italy and blame Italy for what the government is doing there at the moment, which seems somewhat at odds with uh, the way the ECB and the Commission has run the economy of the Eurozone, there are other problems here that nobody seems to be talking too much about. It sounds like you're suggesting one of the first tasks for the next ECB boss could be more stimulus. Because if you look at the handover from Mario Draghi, I mean, you know, several months ago we were talking about would Draghi get to move with a rate hike before he left? Would he actually move toward the, towards the exit? Now what you're talking about for an incoming ECB president is that you might have a very challenging system where you have to reach around in the toolbox where Draghi's not left many tools to play with to come up with a solution of more easing as your first task as the new boss of uh, the ECB. Uh, that would be the case if intellectually I fell into that camp. But I'm, I, like many people, um, argue that there could have been a different path. And they missed an opportunity to encourage, shall we say, more firmly the kind of reform that they're talking about. Look, here we're... With, we're, with higher rates, well, well, with, with tougher with, monetary setting. A, a little bit more pain. I mean, what, what was that line that we talked about and listened to around 2008, never miss the opportunity generated by a good crisis? Mm. Well, they missed it. And the reforms didn't take place as aggressively as they should have done. And now they're paying the consequences for that. And now we're in an environment where low interest rates are acting as a disincentive 
to risk capital, it seems to me. The debate you're having then sets the context for the debate that others are having about who should be the next ECB president because there's a, a camp out there saying, or Villeroy, who is uh, from the Bank of France, he should be perhaps the next contender. But many see him as being very similar to Mario Draghi, that he would be advocating potentially more stimulus, a very similar type of communication. A very different change, very swift change, would be towards the German camp to Weidmann, mm. who would some, some would believe would tighten the screws a little bit perhaps uh, bring more back for savers, but that would have the impact of potentially uh, putting more pressure on bond markets that we have seen also move south where investors have gotten out of that negative bond, uh, negative German bond, to put money back into the likes of Spain and Portugal. Absolutely. So that could set the scene for changes if people you know, buy into your way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing this for over 10 years. Is it perhaps time to think about a different approach and uh, pick something else from the menu? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.